Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, everyone. This week, I'm going to do something a little bit different. It's just going to be me and you guys today. I know I normally have guests on here and we talk about incredible topics and cover all kinds of cool stuff. And the discussions are so deep and awesome. I'm just so grateful for the amazing guests that I have on this podcast. But I recently had someone I'm working with ask me a really great set of questions. And I asked his permission to be able to use this on the podcast. And he was totally great about it and said, Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share my questions with your audience and obviously hear what you have to say. These are questions that actually come up quite a bit in my work with individuals who are struggling to overcome compulsive or addictive behaviors. And it can be so challenging because there's so many things that go into overcoming compulsive and addictive behaviors. It's not just as simple as wanting to stop. If you ever want to see something funny and maybe see how ridiculous sometimes it is when we just tell ourselves or expect others just to stop it, you can get on YouTube and look up a video that I actually saw in graduate school from, uh, I think it's Mad TV, but it's Bob Newhart and uh, it's called Stop It. And you'll see it on YouTube. It's got millions and millions of views. And it's, it's really funny. It's, it's a woman who has terrible anxiety and fears. And his solution to her is just ridiculously and insensitively <laughs> stupid just to stop it. And he gets mad at her for making it more complicated than that. Well, in reality, there are some things we can just stop. No doubt about it. But there are also patterns and ways of thinking and things in our lives that don't go away as quite, quite as easily. And so we, uh, hopefully you understand what I'm saying, that we all want to be able to just stop it immediately. We all want to be able to make things go away quickly. Yet here we are with thorns in our sides, with patterns and beliefs and all kinds of blind spots that keep us from making the changes that we want to make. And so I'm here with you and with anyone who I'm working with in this journey, in this process of trying to uncover and understand those things which get in the way that make it hard to stop the things that we want to stop. And this question definitely falls well within this discussion. And so this good man was, was kind enough to share his question with my audience. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background. This is somebody that I've been working with who is overcoming a years-long issue, and he would even call it an addiction to pornography, and really struggling, and a very earnest, intelligent person who is motivated and cares deeply about getting this right and living a life of sexual integrity and being faithful and keeping his promises. 
and he's done tremendous work. We've done a lot of work on mindfulness. We've done a lot of work on acceptance and not resisting and battling his emotions and really starting to lean into sitting with discomfort. And over the last while, he's made tremendous progress and seen some pretty cool changes happening. And um, it had been a while since I talked to him and he, he wrote me back and asked a question. And I'm just going to read you what he says here. And, and let's just walk through helping him really understand how to get back on track, keep working in his, in his recovery work, and most importantly, to not, not lose hope and to keep moving forward. Because that, to me, is, seems to be one of the biggest challenges is when people make mistakes or when they cross boundaries that they didn't want to cross. It's so easy for hope to go out the window, isn't it? It's so easy to feel like it's never going to be different. It's never going to change. It's never going to stop. And it's so important to not lose hope. It's so important to keep trying, to keep working, to keep at it, because these things do take time. And I have so much respect, so much admiration for anyone who's willing to get back up, dust themselves off, and get back in the ring and keep working on this. Now, I recognize that sometimes there's consequences. Sometimes it goes on too long for a spouse. Sometimes it goes on too long. And, you know, I've, I've seen employers have to make boundaries. I've seen people have to live the consequences, if you will, of, of the struggle. But the individual who struggles with this can make a lifetime commitment that they will never give up. And so this individual that I'm going to share with you today, his story, he's someone who definitely is not giving up. And I respect him and I'm grateful for his commitment and his example. So what he shared here is that he said that he had been feeling like things were getting better. He was feeling more free every single day. And he had had a pretty good routine of just something we would call dailies, things that he does on a daily basis to help him stay balanced, help him keep his emotions centered, um, been working out, uh, staying in, in good relationships. I had been, been engaging in a spiritual practice of reading scriptures and was even relating in healthy ways, even to his urges, and just was feeling really good. And then he, he's looking back and trying to, and I encourage a lot of guys to go back and do somewhat of a, I'm not sure if this is really the, the most helpful metaphor, but it's one that I use, sort of like how forensic investigators go back and recreate a scene of an accident, where they'll go back and try and trace the steps and look at all the different pieces. And so, you know, he, in, in doing this, which I had encouraged him to do, he recognized that he had been sporadic in some of his practices with meditation, for example, or, and that because there had been a, a trip and some other unexpected things that he'd been thrown off with some of his routine with exercise and eating. And anyway, and so then he'd been checking in with his support system and, you know, trying to get back on track. But then he said it was difficult to get back on track. And he said he just kind of started to feel on edge sort of uneasy, if you will, about what the future held. And he says, and then I tried to correct that. I just kept feeling scared about the future though. And he says, and today it got to the point where it turned into desperation. The urges were really bad. I took chances to try and be mindful. I tried to feel them willingly, but they persisted. And I panicked. And then I relapsed. Even though I'm super proud of my progress and I feel really good about the near future, it is really hard for me to feel optimistic in the week or so after a relapse. So then he asked me a few questions. So hopefully you get a feel for where this guy's coming from and what he's working on. And hopefully you can feel what I feel, which is 
just how earnest and sincere and willing this guy is to just really live a life of integrity, to put things in his life that help him stay stable and present for those he loves, and to just live a life of you know, deep commitment and connection to himself, to God, to his family, to others. So here's, here's the questions. He asked me four questions, and I really wanted to take this opportunity in this episode to break these down and have a discussion about these, and hopefully it's helpful to you or those you love. Number one, how do you find optimism and emotionally recover quickly after a relapse? Well, I think there's something important in your question, and you use the word quickly. One thing I'll say about doing things quickly in the face of relapses, it's really easy to get reactive. It's really easy to get impatient. It's really easy to almost become impulsive and stay in the same mindset that you had when you were reaching and acting out for something to give you relief. So for example, a lot of the times the solution in acting out, let's say with pornography, sexual acting out, is to quickly get something over with is to quickly get rid of the discomfort, is to quickly eliminate something that's really painful. And so if after the fact, after you cross a line, make a mistake, betray yourself and others, then how do you quickly recover from that? How do you quickly find optimism? Well, I think it's important in that moment to slow down, actually. I think it's important in that moment to let yourself actually feel some of that discomfort, some of that pain. Now, I'm not advocating that you beat yourself up or feel like a loser or go into shame. I don't think that's helpful at all. In fact, I think that's counterproductive. But I do think that there's a temptation to want to quickly escape the feelings that you're having right there, the feelings of regret. This is actually one of the places where you can learn the most and have the most insight about your process is when you make mistakes. You can actually use this as a time to deepen your awareness of where you've been, where you are, where you want to go. It's a chance for you to take an honest assessment of all the different moving pieces. Our pain will point us to solutions. Our pain will point us to our values. Our pain will point us to the things that matter most. I have not personally in my own life become a better person, a better husband, a better father, even a better professional without painful feedback from my mistakes from feedback from my wife, from my children, from observing, from patterns of things that I continue to struggle with, with blind spots. And so it's precisely in that pain that we're going to really do our best work. Now, like anything, we need to recognize that if the pain turns into shame, if it turns into unhealthy shame, if it turns into self-loathing and beating ourselves up and making these kind of global statements about our worth and value, then that's not productive. In fact, that's just a dead end. That's a black hole. In fact, it doesn't invite change. It invites just punishment. On the other hand, when we're feeling remorse, when we're feeling regret, when we're feeling that we've just separated ourselves from our values, when we can have compassion and empathy for the losses and the pain that we've inflicted on ourselves and other people, and really just sit in that for a moment, we actually can open ourselves up to a lot of possibilities, a lot of lessons. So as far as finding optimism, I think the optimism comes from recognizing that all is not lost. You can embrace and understand the consequences. You could say things like, okay, I'm going to own and accept the fact that right now I feel deep regret. I can own the fact that there might be other consequences because of what I did. I may have to handle some of the embarrassment and maybe pain or humiliation 
endure the disappointment of those I love. There's going to be a lot of things that I might have to feel, but I can also discover hope in that, that I can learn a lesson and that will create some optimism, that I can see where today's a new day, right now is a new moment. What's the next right thing I can do? Where else can I step into light? Where else can I step into truth? And so the optimism comes from really the hope and the belief that you can change. And if you're quickly trying to exit out of the pain, then there won't be any reason for change. There won't be any motivation for change. There won't be anything that you need to change because you'll just feel great all of a sudden. So I want you to slow that down. I want you to allow yourself, maybe even write those things down, note them somewhere where you can recognize that there are things that need changing. Give yourself permission to take the time you need. And then the optimism will start to sprout up. You'll start to feel more emotionally balanced. You'll start to feel more hopeful. You'll start to recognize that you're not all bad and you're also not Superman and you know above feeling hard things. Numbing out addictive behaviors, compulsive behaviors, give us the illusion that we're above having to feel the full range of human emotions. Somehow we're the exception. And so in the aftermath or the wake of a mistake or a setback or a relapse, whatever you want to call it, use this as an opportunity to let yourself feel what it's like to be human and embrace the the potential and the optimism and the hope for change. Because the fact that you let yourself feel, the fact that you let yourself be a human being and embrace change and keep moving forward, despite accepting the consequences and having to face these hard things, you aren't stuck. You aren't stuck. All right, so let's move on to question number two. This one's a little bit unrelated, but definitely related. And he asks, how do you deal with a sexual dream? They do happen sometimes, and dang it, it always seems to precede a really tough day. Well, first of all, I'm not a dream expert, and I don't know that anybody can predict when you're going to have a sexual dream, but I understand because I hear this a lot from different guys that I've worked with over the last 20 plus years. And obviously as a man myself, and I know women too that have sexual dreams, it's not just related to men, but just as a human being, I understand that sometimes when you're living, trying to live a life of integrity, you can have a dream where you wake up and you're like, oh my goodness, like what just happened? Or it can be a little bit uh, jarring if if you're trying to just live a life again of of sexual integrity, and you know you wake up and eventually realize, okay, that was harmless. I really didn't go do that thing, or this experience really didn't happen. And sometimes you wake up and they feel real, like you've actually got to apologize for something. But the truth is, is that sexual dreams are sexual dreams, and the less energy we give them, and the less we, you could say, sort of give them any sort of meaning then the better, the better we do. I, I think sometimes this comes from sexual shame, almost like that we shouldn't be feeling these things or that we feel out of control with our sexuality. But the reality is, is sexual dreams are just part of our regular dream cycle of just working things out. And sometimes in the safety of a dream, we can, we can work out frustrations and fantasies and anxieties and other things like that. And sometimes they become sexualized. And I know my wife keeps a dream journal and she will sometimes write down and really analyze and look up online symbols and meanings and try and understand that. And you can certainly take some time and do that and really see if you can piece together some emotional things that you're working through and really try and understand the meaning behind this. But definitely, I think some of the the struggle, you know, following a dream like that for you might be that you feel like you've acted out or you've given in or that you should somehow be suppressing your sexual energy. Um, in your sleep and that you're you're somehow doing something wrong. Well, I'm here to tell you, you're not doing something wrong. 
you've obviously struggled with a lot of compulsive sexual behavior over the years. And so there's going to be, you know, a lot of anxiety and energy and uh, things going on in your, in your brain that, you know, are probably going to be hard to just completely map and eliminate. But when you wake up and you realize that you've, you've had that energy and you feel extra charged or you feel just sort of overwhelmed there, the answer to that is not to just obviously act out sexually and just get rid of it. The answer isn't to suppress it and pretend it doesn't exist. It's an opportunity for you to slow yourself down, to do some breathing and a lot of acceptance work and a lot of just self-compassion and also just not giving it a bunch of energy. It's not that you're ignoring it and it's not that you're fixating on it. You're just going to let it be what it is and recognize, huh, well, I have a lot of sexual energy and I'm going to carry on with the day. I'm not going to try and, you know, figure out exactly where every single little feeling or thought came from. Again, if you do decide to analyze it and go into more of a analytical mode with it, then I don't want you to do it to try and make it go away. If anything, I want you to do it to just create some understanding from a non-reactive place, from a place of curiosity and openness. And it can also help to share it with somebody. It might be a little bit embarrassing or a little bit funny. You might feel like, oh my goodness, like that was crazy. And, but I don't want you to give it a bunch of negative, heavy energy that you've done something wrong because you haven't. You're allowed to have a, a dream cycle, a dream process, and a lot of the times it can feel threatening to, you know, a partner or even to yourself, but I just want to, I really want to take some of the charge out of it because there's just so much that we can't understand or control about how our minds and bodies work and a healthy dose of acceptance, maybe even a little bit of humor and just allowing things just to kind of move through can be helpful. And again, this is not going to go away. And this is not something that you need to be ashamed of. It's not something that you need to even like try and stop. It's just something that as you continue to work and be healthy and work through your emotions, then, you know, you'll just have better ways of dealing with surprises like this. Hopefully that's helpful to you. It's a great question. It's one I get asked quite a bit, actually. Let's move on to question number three. This question is going to sound a little bit confusing at first, but I'll break it down for you. I actually had to read this one a couple of different times. So here's the question. How do you stay willing when you know your willingness is the only thing saving you from relapse? It gets hard to not worry when not worrying is the only thing saving you. So this is a question about willpower. This is a question about recognizing that sometimes the only thing that's standing between you and a relapse is your will. And then when you're trying to practice mindfulness or surrender, then sometimes like what he's saying in the second part of his question it can feel like not worrying becomes really stressful, right? I'm trying to not worry about not worrying. And you can see how circular it gets. It can be so difficult to feel like you've emotionally backed yourself into a corner. So I recognize that willpower is definitely something that we all rely on and is what moves things forward. But what's interesting is just like in my, my good friend, Mark Chamberlain wrote in his book, Willpower is Not Enough, that willpower by itself is kind of like trying to hang on the monkey bars in elementary school and see if you can outlast your buddy and then eventually your fingers give out, right? They just start to peel off one at a time and then you, you let go. That's willpower. Willpower can get a lot of things done. In fact, willpower gets things started and it actually can keep us in the process. But the paradox is that when at the very edge of feeling like you're trying to hold on, hold on, hold on and not go into something... It actually requires the very thing you're terrified of, which is letting go. Now, most people, of course, naturally think that letting go is giving in. Letting go is 
just indulging or acting out. And that's probably been most of the experience that this this person and also other people have when they feel like they get to the very edge. And I certainly have been there. I understand what it's like when you're dealing with any sort of an urge, any sort of a thing that you feel like you don't want to do. And then all of a sudden you're just like, willpower, willpower. And then all of a sudden it just gives out, right? Like you let go of the of the monkey bar and you drop to the ground or you give in, you act out. The challenge with that, of course, is that you may get discouraged and feel like, okay, well, I've got to generate or drum up a ton of willpower now, and I've got to somehow double, triple, quadruple my strength. So next time I don't feel so overwhelmed. So let's back this up a little bit and go into that paradox. So the paradox, or again, the thing that's that's counterintuitive or the opposite of what we think is using that moment of willpower to surrender. So what I mean by surrender is to allow yourself to feel the powerlessness, allow yourself to feel the fear, allow yourself to feel the hopelessness, and allow yourself to even have some compassion for how hard you're working to not do this. And that release is really giving yourself permission just to feel all the things you're feeling. A lot of the times what you're trying to do is not act out sexually, but you're also not allowing yourself to feel. You're also just trying to just narrow your focus to just not do this one behavior, but you've basically cut yourself off from all the emotions and all the feelings and all the things that are going along with it. And so when I say letting go or giving in, what I'm suggesting is breathing and backing up from not trying to do the behavior and instead being willing to just expand the whole human experience that you're having. I'm a good person trying not to do this and I'm working so hard and I feel so powerless. I feel so afraid. I feel so anxious. I feel so helpless. I care so deeply about this. This really matters to me. And you can open up. We talk about reaching out and connecting to others as a way to help you, but not, you know, it's not available to everybody in every single moment. And so what, I, what I'm talking about is this, this, this type of surrender is really just giving yourself permission to feel the full range of emotions, which a lot of the times you're moving toward that behavior or that acting out as a way to avoid feeling anything. And so a lot of the times it's like, what, Jeff, you're asking me to like feel more? You're asking me to expand and allow myself to feel the full range? And I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I'm asking you to do. Again, counterintuitive, paradoxical. This is, this is not what most of us think to do. And sometimes it feels really wide open and we don't really know where it's going to go. But again, in my experience, what you need is to feel more of what you're feeling instead of less of what you're feeling. So when the question is, is how do you stay willing when you know your willingness is the only thing saving you from relapse? Well, the willingness is really just this drive to the drive to not feel. The willingness is like the drive to overcome or, or conquer this behavior. And so the focus is on what you're not going to do instead of what you're going to allow yourself to feel. And in that feeling of opening up to sadness or fear or disappointment or whatever other emotions, you know, fear about the future or all the things that maybe you've been wrestling with, you may worry that it's just going to make things worse. But again, restricting, constricting, trying not to do something and just resisting, 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 that's where the suffering is going to happen, actually. So that's a great question. And there's a lot we could say about this, but I'll, I'll say that much for now. See if you can let yourself open up and experience the things that you've actually been resisting and trying to constrict.
Okay, so let's go to the last question here. This is, how can I handle emotions of discontent or stress or loneliness when my normal schedule is interrupted by a trip or an event? It definitely happens a lot, and I don't want it to be an Achilles heel for me. Well, again, really great question because there are a lot of surprises that happen. And of course, things like trips or other events might be scheduled or we might be able to anticipate those things and and be prepared. But again, there are, are plenty of times where our schedules or routines get interrupted, whether that's a rough night sleeping or an interruption by a loved one or something, you know, that really does matter that we do need to prioritize, but it still does get in the way of, you know, of our normal routine. A lot of people will approach their recovery to addictive or compulsive behaviors through the lens of trying to control. They'll kind of create this illusion that they're in control. And the reality is, is that there are a lot of things we can manage. There's a lot of things we can direct and steer. But ultimately, a lot of what we feel, especially, is really out of our control. I can't predict when somebody's going to say something hard to me or when I'm going to make a mistake or hurt somebody or when I'm going to just feel some unexpected emotions, when I see something or hear something or remember something. And so trips and events and disruptions to our routine really challenge our perceived sense of control that we have about our lives. And so if you're somebody who leans toward perfectionism or trying to be exact in everything, then this is a good opportunity for you to build in some flexibility. Now, that word can feel scary to a lot of people. That word can feel like that it's giving themselves permission to make mistakes or to enable bad behaviors. But the truth is, is that flexibility is what allows us to maintain a lot of humanity, actually. It allows us to be structured but flexible. It allows us to have a plan, but also be able to make exceptions to that plan. And we have to be honest with ourselves about whether we're giving ourselves permission to do unhealthy things or if we're really just allowing ourselves to have some breathing room. So for example, if you go on a trip or you have an event, do you need to keep the exact same rigid schedule exactly the way you would do it at home? Maybe, maybe not. Is there a place where you can give yourself some room to flex, maybe do a little bit less of one thing, maybe a little bit more of another? Another way to look at this too is looking at the emotions that come up for you with whatever the event might be. Are you going to speak at something? Are you going to do something that requires maybe a level of performance or you're creating something or going to visit somebody that might bring up emotions. They might be emotions that are unfamiliar or uncomfortable or things that you might in your normally scheduled or controlled life, you can avoid having to feel. And so there might be a lot of vulnerability that opens up that you're having a hard time managing. So this is a good opportunity again, to talk to someone about it, to journal about it, to name it, to identify it. And, you know, like we talk about, if you can name those things, you can tame those things. So this is an opportunity for you to recognize that if you're dealing with stress or loneliness as part of these events or these trips, or or it really surfaces things that you can manage most of the time when you're living your regular uh, life, then, then it's important to just have compassion for those and to talk about them, share them, open up about them, embrace them. There might be solutions in there too. There might be things you do differently to address them, but In terms of handling those emotions of discontent, stress, or loneliness, each one of those might have a story behind it. Each one of those might have something that you need to make peace with and do some acceptance work around. For example, you might say like, okay, stress is going to be a part of this. I'm going to feel powerless. I'm going to 
have to deal with the uncertainty of this particular thing or when I go travel or when I do these things and I feel disconnected from my normal routine, I'm just going to feel lonely. And instead of just jumping right into, well, I need to surround myself with things or get busy or whatever, you might look at what's so painful about the loneliness for you. Why is that so difficult for you? What are you experiencing with that? And again, I, I know I talk a lot about sitting with your emotions, but I feel like our emotions can teach us so much of what we need, what we long for, what we desire. And sometimes we'll feel them and we'll be like, oh, not going there. That one's really uncomfortable. And so we, we bypass it instead of gently opening that door and learning from it. My time with my regret, my time with my sadness, my time with my hurt and anger and jealousy and all the different emotions have really opened up a lot of new views about myself and about others and have really helped guide my process. And so if these emotions are coming up for you, use them as an opportunity to deepen your own understanding of yourself and your world and your relationships. Okay, I'm going to pause there. These were four great questions from somebody who's really working hard in this recovery process. And as you can see, none of these, none of these answers had anything to do with stopping it. <laughs> so really, if you haven't listened or watched that clip on YouTube from Bob Newhart, go check it out. It's crazy, hilarious. But as you can see, none of these things in here are really just about like, hey, just knock it off or quit doing it. It's really about learning how to make peace with and build a relationship with our own emotions, with understanding and having self-compassion, with being flexible and understanding how to work with the flow of emotions that rise and fall. There's just so much under the hood work that goes on in living in a healthy way that comes when you're trying to manage a recovery process. And to me, this is the stuff that really helps us become healthier human beings, helps us show up better in our relationships. It helps us be more productive and more connected to those we love. And I think more creative and more open. Thank you so much for joining me for this time together. I really hope that this question and answer segment has been helpful to you. I hope it's made a difference for you. And I certainly hope it's been helpful to the good man who asked me these questions. Hopefully he's received some benefit from it, but I hope all of you have received benefit from it as well. There's a lot here that I think applies to betrayal trauma. There's a lot here that applies to anytime we want to overcome unwanted feelings and emotions and know how to deal with them. We really do have very similar experiences as humans and whether it's a compulsive behavior or an unwanted feeling or a trauma or things like that that just come at us, a lot of the principles actually are quite similar. There's a lot of overlap. Always love hearing from all of you. Thank you for your great feedback and your comments and suggestions. I hear on a regular basis what a great difference this is making for people in their lives and their relationships. As always, you can find me on my website, fromcrisis2connection.com. You can find online courses like my Trust Building Bootcamp, past episodes of this podcast, online columns in my blog section, and then all kinds of other resources. I'm also on social media and very active there. And of course, I'd love for you to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The algorithm loves that. It makes it easier for people to find this great information. So help someone out and share it in any way that you can. Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Mm-hmm.